Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk, to please God, so you would abound more and more. For we know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Down to verse 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And this morning I've got uh, five points from that I want to uh, emphasize. And we're probably going to be done early. However, well, we're not really because after James heard uh, someone tell me that I was better when I didn't prepare and then the vote was taken to not come and listen to me tonight, James in his kind, loving, peacemaking manner said, John, don't take that vote personally. It's just that we'd like to hear missionaries. But to make up for it, you can preach two sermons Sunday morning. And I thought, well, that's really nice of him, really kind. And then he said, but after 15 minutes, I'm shutting the mic off. So I don't know. I'm going to try, but I'll just do one sermon this morning. But first, we're going to talk, think about this point, walk, <clears throat> walk right. Jesus said, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. Now, as a little kid growing up, I often saw flannel graphs, as some of you did. Uh, today, of course, we use PowerPoint. But the flannel graphs, and talking about this section, would always uh, show a man standing at an intersection with a broad road going this way and a little narrow one going this way. And it made sense. But a few years ago, uh, our church sent Pam and I to... Uh, the Holy Lands for 10 days. And I checked the tickets before we left to make sure it was a two-way ticket, and it was, so we went and we came back. But I saw something in Jerusalem that made this scripture a little more real. As you walk through the main gate, and I don't remember which gate we went into, but as you go in the gate of Jerusalem, there's a wide road, probably as wide as one pew. And in old Jerusalem, that's wide. But uh, walk down there, and there's shops and stores and houses on each side. And every once in a while, along this long brick wall, where there's a door here and a window here and a door here going into the shops, there'd be an iron gate. And the guide told us that that iron gate does not go to somebody's backyard, but it goes to another street. And those streets are about as wide as this hallway. If you've been down that hallway, you know it's narrow, but they're streets. So if the people in Jerusalem, when Jesus was speaking, would understand that the wide path and the narrow, narrow street that you had to look for, people lived down many of those streets, and I don't know how they found their homes, because the streets weren't named. There'd just be an opening in the wall with an iron gate at it. So when he said you have to hunt for it, you have to look for it, you have to know what you're doing to find it, that's what he meant. He didn't mean it was a crossroad that you just had to choose one or the other. He meant you really had to diligently look for that narrow way and that we're to stay on it. It's very easy, I believe, for Christians to 
come to times in their life when maybe they even think they're walking right, but there's something there that isn't quite right. Uh, at one time, I pastored a church in a very small farming community in southwest Minnesota. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, we used to get blizzards there. Now, I know you get snow here, uh, but what you call snow here is, well, up there we would just call it dusting. Uh, snow comes there in not feet or inches, but in feet. Uh, James and Joanne probably remember days in North Dakota when snow would be so deep you could hardly walk. But when the strong winds come up, it creates a total whiteout so you can't see anything. Well, one day uh, in this small community, an elderly couple who'd lived in the same farmhouse for 40 years came into town to shop. We'd been told a blizzard was coming and they wanted to be prepared, so they came in and got food and supplies for a couple of days to be stranded in their farmhouse. The storm was not supposed to come until Saturday, but it came on Thursday when they were in shopping. When they came out, the snow was blowing and they decided it's only 10 miles to their home, they could make it. So they started out down this little highway. And when the blizzards come up, well, what do you see there? Just white. <laughs> That's what you see out your windshield when you're in a Minnesota blizzard. It's just white. Unless you happen to have a black car, then you might be able to see the hood. And all the farmers in that area had painted their mailboxes black so you could see them in the times of snowstorms. So it was surmised that they counted mailboxes and they came to their mailbox. And he turned right into the driveway. Somehow he miscalculated and went into the ditch. Well, in a blizzard, you don't get your car out of a ditch. So they decided to walk to the farmhouse. Again, all they could see was white, but they'd lived there for 40 years. They could find their house. Well, three days later, their frozen bodies were discovered about 10 yards from their back door. They thought they were walking right. They weren't doing anything wrong. It was a familiar path, but somehow they were blinded by that white snow. And I think often as Christians, we get blinded by doubt, by fear, by anguish, maybe by financial problems, health problems. And we're not doing anything wrong, we're just not totally trusting as we should be. And so we miss the goal. So we need to walk right. It's necessary to know the destination and to keep on the right road to reach that destination. And not let things detour us, not let things blind us. The second thing I want to think about is stay awake. Now you all know the story of the ten virgins waiting for the wedding and so on. I never really, I mean I understood the concept of that story, have your lamps burning and have extra supply but I didn't really understand all of it until, again, we were in the Holy Lands. For one thing, I always thought, 
Why didn't they know when the groom was coming? Didn't they send out invitations saying the wedding will be June 3rd at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at Sherlegan Memorial Church of the Nazarene? I mean, we know when weddings are going to take place. And my Western mind couldn't think like they thought in Jesus' day. Our guide explained to us that it was common for a husband and wife to say, hey, you know, our son's getting old enough. We need to find a wife for him. So they'd watch all the young girls in the community and in the area, maybe many miles away, and they'd find one thing. That's the right one for our son. So they'd take some cows and some sheep and some dove and maybe a donkey and go over to the father's house and say, we have selected your daughter to be a bride for our son. And we've brought these gifts. If they're acceptable, we would like to have her and they dicker back and forth. You know, maybe you say, well, no, I think we need three sheep instead of two sheep, and she's worth two cows instead of one cow or whatever. They reach an agreement. The groom's parents would <clears throat> then go back home and say to their son, we have found a bride for you. Prepare a place for her. And our guide explained to us that in Jesus' day and still today in many of the Arabic nations, there's one main room where the oldest couple in the family live, and each son, when he marries, adds a room to that room, or to that small room. It's not a house, it's just a room. They do the cooking and the living out in the courtyard, so the rooms are basically sleeping areas. So each son builds another room. We saw some of these, you know, they're stretched out for blocks, just one room after another, kind of like a a motel, the one-story motel that we have. And so the groom would be told, prepare a room for her. And it was his job to build that room. Now, if it was good and quick, it might only take a few weeks. If he didn't know what he was doing, it might take a few months. The bride didn't know when that room was going to be finished. When it was nearly finished, a servant would be sent to the bride's home to say, he almost has a place prepared for you. He'll be coming soon. Well, that still isn't real definitive. <clears throat> Excuse me, definitive as to the time, but soon <clears throat> is better than someday. So the servant would go and tell them. <clears throat> she would then call her bridesmaids who were to sit in the courtyard and wait for the groom. As he approached... He would take a ram's horn and blow it so they'd hear it from a distance. Then when he got closer, he'd holler, I'm here. You know, kind of like, this is Henry, I've come for Virginia, or, or whatever. <clears throat> I just made those names up. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the bridesmaid's job was to get the bride ready. Usually, he would come at night because he'd leave in the morning, but he'd walk a long distance. It would be dark by the time he got there. So the bridesmaids were to make sure the lamps were all glowing so he could see that glow in the distance and know where he was going and to make sure the bride had enough light to get ready. When he arrived at the gate, the bride and the bridesmaids would meet him at the gate and go back 
to the room he had prepared for her. Now, they didn't have street lights, you understand. I, I know you all know that. So those oil lamps were precious. And if the lamp went out, the bridesmaid couldn't make the journey. Now, when they arrived at the groom's house, the parents had already called all the neighbors over, and they were having a big celebration. So when the bride and the groom arrived, the party was already in, in effect. It was already going on. They were already having a great time. And that made the story of the virgins little more, made, made a little more sense to me. And I realized that Jesus was saying, and he said it in another place, I've gone to prepare a room for you. I know the King James says a mansion, but most other versions say I've gone to prepare a room for you. And they would have understood that this was the groom saying, I'm fixing a room for you. And I'm going to come and get you and bring you back. And there'll be a great celebration. And isn't that what we're looking forward to? That great celebration. And I think we as individuals are the bridesmaids and also the bride. <laughs> Combined, we make the bride, which is the church. But individually, we're the bridesmaids who have to make sure the lamp is glowing in our lives. Make sure we have enough oil so when the groom comes and says, I'm here, we as a church can leave and meet the bride. Meet the groom, I'm sorry. As I thought about that, I, I was thinking that the church, generally, not individuals, but the universal church maybe isn't ready. We can look at so many churches that have lost their way. They're not awake to what's going on in their spiritual lives. So I've driven around the city the last several months. I've seen dozens of church buildings empty and for sale. And that's so sad. Some of them are huge buildings. Uh, some of them are small, but some of them are just huge buildings that are standing empty. The, the, the church has failed to win the next generation. Uh, it's not true today, but in past weeks, I suppose because I was a pastor and things like this interest me, but I've counted and I've seen almost every Sunday for the last several weeks, more people under the age of 50 than over the age of 50. And I think that's so great. That's so encouraging, so inspiring to know that this church building is not going to be for sale in the next few years. But so many are because the church is not awake. The next thing I want us to consider is be alert. Now, be awake and be alert maybe are similar. But you can be awake and not be alert. Uh, one Sunday uh, back in the 1960s, uh, I was just a kid then, I got a call Sunday night after the service and district superintendent said, you know, there's a lot of flooding going up in northwest uh, Minnesota and the folks up there really need a break. They've been working, feeding those, and taking care of those that are involved in the flood and those that are doing the sandbagging. So we're sending all of you young guys up there. Can you leave right now? 
Well, I just had a full day. At the, in those days, I did six services on Sunday, so I was pretty tired by the end of the last one. But I said, sure, I can go. So I got in the car, threw a few things in a suitcase, got in the car, and started this trip way up north to Thief River Falls, Minnesota, which is right next to Crookstown, Minnesota. It's a real spiritual area up there, thieves and crooks. And, but at any rate, I was going up there and uh, got a paper map now, some of you here, or not very many, but three or four of you may have never seen a paper map, but it's a thing that used to have roads drawn on it so you could find your way from one spot to another. And I stopped and got one and saw that I had to drive out Highway 10 to a city called Detroit Lakes and then make a left turn onto Highway 83 and follow that up to Thief River Falls. That was about 10 o'clock before I got started. About one o'clock in the morning, I came into this little town and realized I had no idea where I was. The only thing open was a bar, and I went in and said, uh, I hope you can help me. And the lady behind the bar said, how? I said, well, I think I'm lost. And she said, well, most of the people in here are lost most of the time. Uh, I said, well, I haven't been drinking and I'm still lost. I said, I left Minneapolis for Thief River Falls, and I was supposed to turn left in Detroit Lakes, but evidently I got on the wrong highway because I never came to Detroit Lakes. And she started laughing and said, you're really lost. I said, how lost am I? And she said, you went through Detroit Lakes and made a left turn about an hour and a half ago. You're on Highway 83, just keep going. And I realized then that for the last two hours, my eyes had been open and my hands had been steering the car, but mentally I was asleep. I mean, Detroit Lakes is a pretty good sized town and I didn't know I'd gone through it. She suggested I go over to the city park and pull my car up the curb and sleep for a couple hours before I finished the trip, which I did. But I was awake, but I was not alert. Have you ever been there? Read a book, finish a chapter and think, huh, I don't remember one thing that was in that chapter, so you have to go back and read it again. Our uh, middle son was always known as not being real alert. He's very, very bright, very smart. but not alert. We had moved into a, a new parsonage. We got new living room furniture when we moved in. And about three months later, having walked through the living room every time he went in or out of the house, he came in and said, oh, you got some new living room furniture today. I said, no, we've had it about three months. He said, oh, huh, how come I've never seen it? Well, he wasn't real alert. Another time he came home and said, I got a ticket today. We said, for what? He said, I ran into a school bus. He said, how did you run into a school bus? I didn't see it. How can you not see a great big yellow school bus? Fortunately, there were no kids in it, and the only thing that damaged was our car, but being alert is not the same as being awake. I'm afraid that maybe decades ago, Christians became less alert to what was going on. 
I know my parents, and I'm sure my grandparents, I never knew them, and probably yours, were a Christian nation, was the thinking. We were founded on Christian standards. We will always be a Christian nation. We will always live by Christian standards. And therefore, we were not watching, not being alert to what was going on. Way back when I was in school, and I'm sure most of you, every morning we pledged allegiance to the flag, we read a scripture, and someone prayed. Now, of course, in some schools they can't even say the pledge to the flag, let alone pray or read the scripture. And I think that happened just because we weren't alert to what was going on around us. Uh, just heard this week something uh, that kind of disconcerting to say the least. My sister-in-law texted me and asked that we pray for her grandson, Dylan. Now, Dylan, since he was in middle school, had a dream of being a Marine. And he became a Marine. But her text said that he's going to be given a general discharge, not an honorable discharge, because he was caught reading his Bible in the barracks. And they'd been told they could not have a Bible in the barracks. He was then called into the uh, commanding officer's office and told, you have to sign this piece of paper. And he read through it and said, I can't sign that. He said, well, that's the new marine policy. You have to sign it. And he said, I'm not going to refer to my mother as my birthing parent. She's my mother. I'm not going to refer to my father as the donor parent. He's my father. And I'm not going to call my brother my sibling. He's my brother. And I'm not going to agree to never use any gender words such as him, he, her, his. You can only use they. He said, I can't do that. That goes against my conscience. And then there were several other things as well. So they said, well, then we're going to give you a general discharge, and you'll have a hard time finding a job without an honorable discharge. So you better rethink it. He said, there's nothing to rethink. I, I didn't, did you know that was going on in our military? I didn't know that. I would have never guessed it. But I guess it's pretty much throughout our entire military. And as pastor shared with you a couple weeks ago, I had spoken to the area director of prison fellowship, and in Oklahoma, they still have full open visitation and Bible studies in the prison, but in some states, they're not allowed in anymore because separation in church and state means you can't have a religious service in a state prison. And I think all of us know that what the people in the state prison need more than anything else is Jesus Christ, but they're not going to hear that if no one can tell them. I th we've, we've become not alert to what evil is happening in our country. The next thing I want to think about is don't drift. Have you ever driven down the highway thinking you're really paying attention and suddenly you hear a rumble, 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 rumble as your tires hit that rumble strip along the right side of the... You've done that? <laughs> Yeah, whenever I do it, Pam says, John! I say, I'm okay, I heard it, I can move, I'm going over. But it's so easy to just 
kind of drift. My, as I've told you before, my first church was uh, what we called ghetto then, and then it became inner city, so now I guess it's urban society. But at any rate, they were poor. And I tried to do things with the teenagers to give them life experience outside the ghetto and also to kind of bond them to the church. And every month we did something, bowling or horseback riding or something. They saw some canoes one day, and one of them said, let's take a canoe trip. I said, okay, I'll figure out how to do it. <clears throat> Found a place to rent canoes on the St. Croix River, which is the river that separates Minnesota from Wisconsin. We got there one morning, two van fulls, and, and told the guy renting the canoes we wanted to rent canoes. And he said, are you going to go one mile or two? Turned to the kids and said, you want to go one mile or two? <clears throat> oh, let's go two. A mile isn't far enough. So we rented the canoe for two miles. Well, at the two-mile marker, there was a chain-link fence across the river, so you didn't go any further because there was a waterfall. beyond that. <clears throat> they had a great time. They were laughing and singing and splashing each other and uh, just having a great time canoeing. Let's do this again. Can we do it every month all summer? This is great. This is so exciting. It's so much fun. Look at all the trees. The water's clear. We came to the fence and had to go back the other way. Well, we hadn't gone very far before I knew how Moses felt. What do we do this stupid trip for? We shouldn't have done it. It's hard. My arms hurt. My back's aching. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm so thirsty. I hate canoeing. I'm never going canoeing again. What was the difference? We drifted downstream but had a paddle back upstream of a very fast-moving river. You know, it's easy to drift. It doesn't take much work to drift. But it takes a whole lot of work to go against the tide. <clears throat> we need to be sure as Christians that we're not doing that thing which is easy that thing that takes work. And along with the don't drift is the don't stray. Uh, we had a little schnauzer. We had her for 17 years. She was a good little dog. One day we couldn't find her any place in the house. And her sister was getting quite frantic, as we were, because we didn't know what happened to her. But we never did figure out how she got out of the house because neither one of us remembered opening a door. But she got out. Figured that out as soon as we couldn't find her in the house. I'm really smart. She's not in the house. She must be out. So I went out looking for her, walking up and down the street, hollering, Heidi, Heidi, Heidi. About three blocks away, a man came out of his house and said, Are you looking for a little white dog? I said, Yes. He said, Well, she's in my house. So I went up there and I said, thanks for bringing her in. And he said, oh, I didn't bring her in. I said, well, whoever brought her in? He said, well, she brought herself in. I said, well, he said, well, I heard a dog bark at the front door and thought mine must have gotten out of the backyard and run around to the front door. But when I opened the door, she just walked in, went to the kitchen, got a drink out of our dog's dish, came in here, jumped up on the couch and went to sleep. She didn't know she was lost. <laughs> she was comfortable. 
She'd had her water, she was sleeping. In fact, I had to wake, shake her to wake her up, and she wouldn't get, I had to carry her back home. She was too tired. But she was comfortable where she was. And I fear that sometimes as Christians, we become comfortable with what's going on around us. You know, I worked at the city rescue mission as chaplain for, I don't know, nine, ten years, something like that. And the folks would come in to talk to me, and most of them had pretty foul language. And at first I'd always say, please don't use that kind of language. And after a couple of years I realized, I'm not saying that anymore. I'm so used to it, I just let them do it. I had to correct myself and say, no, don't allow them to take God's name in vain in your office. But I became complacent. And I think we do that. I mean, everybody's doing it. How did marijuana get approved in the state of Oklahoma with so many churches and so many Christians? Well, everybody's doing it. We might as well tax it. It's just easy to become very complacent, to just stray from where we know we should be. Years ago, every evangelical church had huge Sunday schools. You had one here. Most churches today don't even have Sunday schools because well, kids don't like to sit and study. They're in school all week. Parents don't want to get up early enough to get their kids up and get them ready. So well, we'll just stop having Sunday school. And I think our society is bearing the consequences of churches stopping Sunday school because we're not training the kids how they should walk. I didn't like Sunday school when I was a kid. Well, sometimes I did, it depended on the teacher. But sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But today, I can think back to so many Bible stories I learned, so much faith lessons I had in Sunday school. Uh, we were talking to Pam last night and pointed out that people voted not to come and listen to me preach tonight, so we're not having service, but uh, I, I forgive you. Well, maybe you didn't vote that way, you're here. But at any rate, I've mentioned that there are some huge Nazarene churches that don't have Sunday night, Sunday night service anymore. I, I couldn't believe it when I heard that. I know a lot of other churches don't, but I didn't think that would be true of the Nazarenes. I went past the Salvation Army building this last week, taking some people that direction. I see that the only activity they have there is at 11 o'clock Sunday morning service. But that's so sad. It breaks my heart. When we were kids... I think maybe Saturday night was the only night we weren't at church. I mean, there was something every night and all day Sunday. But, but well, people don't like to come, so we won't do it. It's hard to get people, so we'll just cancel it. Well, we'll just remove it from the program. Well, as long as, you know, just complacent. 
not even knowing that we're lost. And I think we do that in our own spiritual lives too. We just become complacent with where we are. I'm all right. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. I'm just, you know, I'll just keep going on as I always have. And the last thing Paul tells us in the writing to the Thessalonians is no concubiscence. Now, when I was a kid, I thought, man, I don't know what that is, but I sure don't want to do it. The Greeks, you know, have a verb tense that we don't have, and it's really hard to translate it into our language. You've heard, keep on keeping on. Well, that's kind of the Greek form of a verb that, that we don't have. Continue, continually doing what you've been continually doing is what it means. And the real translation of concubinence is don't even think about thinking about thinking about sin. I was right when I was a little kid. That was a terrible word. Don't even think about thinking about thinking about sin. Don't do it. And we can see so often that that's happened throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. What was Eve doing sitting under that tree? She was hot and had to sit down in the shade. Now, I could be wrong, but I think the Garden of Eden was perfect, so it probably never got hot or cold. So it wasn't because it was hot. It's because she wanted shade. Well, there were dozens of other trees where she could have gotten shade. I think, and I can't prove this scripturally, but I think she was sitting there because she was thinking how good that fruit looked and wondered what it tasted like. And what a difference this world would be had she not been hanging around that tree where she wasn't supposed to be, thinking about thinking about sinning. What was David doing on that rooftop? When he first walked out there and saw Bathsheba, why didn't he say, oh, I shouldn't be out here and shut the door and go back in? Because he was thinking about thinking about sinning. Ananias and Sapphira said, I'm going to sell our land and give all the money to the church so you can take care of the poor. They sold their land. They went home and they talked about it. And then they went and said, well, here's, here's all the money. They had conspired to lie. Had they taken the money directly from the sale to give it to Peter, they wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But they were thinking about, thinking about, thinking about sin. When I was little, and you probably heard this too, you often have children's evangelists or someone like that who'd say, have you ever stolen a cookie from your mother's cookie jar? Anybody ever asked that question when you were little? And of course then told, well, you shouldn't do that, it's a sin. But the real sin wasn't taking the cookie, the real sin was sitting there looking at the cookie jar, what, thinking, figuring out how I can get one. Thinking about thinking about doing wrong. So I think we're all guilty of that, are we not? Anybody here raise your hand and say, I've never thought about thinking about doing wrong? No, I didn't think so. At least you're honest about that. Yeah, right, that's good. We, we tend to find ourselves often in situations thinking about something we shouldn't think about. And Paul says, stop doing it. Just don't think about it, and you won't do it. I had a friend named Ray Sweezy, 
who when I knew him was a uh, captain in the Salvation Army, pastor of the church in Rochester, Minnesota. And he was a lot older than I was. And one day I called him and said, Ray, I've got some problems I don't know how to deal with in the church. Can I come down and talk to you? And he said, sure. So I drove over to Rochester and went into his, the church building. And he said, it's almost lunch. There's a good cafe down here. Let's go down there and talk. And I said, okay. So we went out the front of the church, we turned right, went to the corner, crossed the street, turned left, walked two blocks and across the street again to the restaurant. When we got in there, I said, did you change your mind about what restaurant to go to? He said, no. I said, well, then why did we cross the street? He said, well, I'll tell you something I've never told anyone except my wife. He said, how much do you know of my background? I said, well, I know you were in Hibbing before you came to Rochester, that's about it. So when I was in high school, I started drinking. By the time I was 25, I was living on Skid Row in St. Louis, a total drunk. So one night I was laying in one of the door, store doorways, figuring I was gonna have to spend the night there, when I saw this group of Salvation Army people coming out and they were standing on the street corner, playing music and singing. And then this little lady, and well, she was about Joanne's size, so she wasn't a very big lady. So she stepped out and started preaching. I said, I thought, she's really cute. I wonder what she's got to say. So I went out and I listened to her. And when she was done preaching, she turned the bass drum over on its side and said, if anybody here wants to accept Jesus Christ tonight, come and kneel at this drum. That's going to be our altar. I said, and I did that. And I followed them back to their church. And they gave me a place to stay, and I went through the program, and eventually uh, Dorothy and I got married, and this time they had three kids. I said, but there has not been a day of my life since the night I knelt at that drum that I haven't been tempted to just go get one beer, because one beer won't hurt you. Said, and I prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed for God to deliver me from that. He said, He hasn't. So I spoke to our district leader about it a few years ago, and he said, You know, Paul had a thorn in his side. Just accept that as God's constant reminder to you of what you used to be and what you are no more. And just avoid thinking about drinking. Don't think about it, and you won't do it. He said, so you see between the church door and this restaurant, there's two taverns, and I never walk past a tavern. I always cross the street. He said, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I've sanctified, but that one temptation never leaves me so I never think about it or talk about it or go near it. Maybe we all have those things in our lives that we need to say. I will not think about it. I will not talk about it. I will not go near it because that's the thorn in the flesh. That's the constant temptation that Satan throws at me. And it can be anything. I mean. I mentioned Ray because I thought that was a good example, but it can be anything. I had a lady in one church who was in her 80s. Beautiful Christian lady except one thing. 
When somebody would upset her, she'd let them know how much they upset her. Everybody would say, oh, Granny's upset today. Stay away from her. She'll really give you a piece of her mind. One day she exploded at one of the other ladies in front of me, and then she turned and said, you'll have to forgive me, but my father was Irish, and he had a temper, and I inherited his temper. And being young and brash and maybe not thinking too clearly, I said, well, Granny, isn't it about time you start acting like your heavenly father instead of your earthly father? She looked at me as if I had just slapped her, and she walked out the door, and one of the men said, well, we won't see Granny again. I said, I'm sorry, it just came out. The next Sunday, she came back and said, you're right. And I prayed, and I told God, I want to be like my heavenly father, not my earthly father. Help me control my temper. And before I left that church, she came to me and said, every day, every single day, I strive to be like my heavenly father and not lose my temper. She said, she said I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and, and that temptation is always there for me to lose my temper, to give people a piece of my mind. She said, but I have not done it even once since that day. And she said, it was like you slapped me across the face. I thought, yeah, that's what you look like I had done. But every day she fought that temptation to lose her temper. She'd been a Christian since she was in her 20s and she was now in her 80s. But she stopped thinking about it and stopped thinking about why they hurt me, I'm gonna tell them. I don't know if you ever have this problem. I do. Somebody will say something to me, and I'll go home, and about three hours later, I'll think, boy, I should have said. Any of you ever do that? Boy, I could have gotten them good if I had just thought of this then. And then I think, boy, I'm glad I didn't think of it then, because <laughs> I shouldn't have said it. And I don't know what it is in your life, but there may be, and every, every one of you may have, something that's a thorn in the flesh, something you battle with every day. And Paul's advice is, stop thinking about doing wrong, and you won't do it. it tells us that we should have the mind of Christ. In Romans 12 too, he says, be conformed, do not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the redoing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed, not conformed. Don't even think about thinking about thinking about doing something wrong. Get rid of those thoughts. Conform or transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're going to sing a song in closing, number 134. Songwriters simply said, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. 